0: Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com guest
1: But Really, I want to share a lot about this um, idea of interconnectedness and interdependence. That's pretty big part of my um, inspiration and also insight that i've I feel like out of a lot of the teachings, this one hits again and again for me. I, I have uh, a lot of, I guess, awakenings around this interconnectedness, interdependence. And so really want to explore that, how that influences the awakened heart and the work that we do in the world is deeply touched by that. It's connected to that. It's um yeah, it's a part of that. And so I wanted to t- I want to talk about that tonight and to inspire people to think about their lives as no matter what we're doing or what we go out and do in the world, to carry that seed is really important and to nurture that seed is very, very important. You know, it doesn't matter what you do. It's the spirit of may this be of benefit to all beings. I think we carry that. that, that struck me, that teaching. Bodhicitta has been a huge part of my practice. It's something very easy for me to identify with. It was like, oh, of course. You know, I, I sat through so much and I still continue to work with my own mind, of course, all the time. I mean, none of us are enlightened. We're all on the path. It's important to remember that, you know, we're all just trying. Um, But there was times where I was on this retreat. It was like, that's it. I've done. It was too much dukkha, right? I I think I can't take this practice. It's too much. It's asking too much. It wants too much. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be present anymore. I'm sure you guys had a moment like that, right? It was like, oh, no, this is it. You know, this is madness. Who would do this to themselves, you know? (laughs) This can't be leading anywhere. I would think that. This is just pain. You know, how could this be good? I could be... Taking a dance class, you know? Why am I like, I could be hanging out somewhere. This is, you know. And you know what would always bring me back would be my family. I would have that, I'd be right about feeling like I want to give up, you know, go back to my room. And suddenly I would see an image of my mother in my mind or my community, right? People suffering. And I would think, well, what well, spring, what if you could help them? what if you became a better person and then you had something to offer? What if, you, what if you could be of service to these people? And I remember I would go, oh, of course. This isn't about me. If it was about me, I would have left. I never would have stuck this out. It was always for the benefit of others. Another time I remember sitting in here and the same thing happened. I have a friend who I grew up with who had a very destructive life. She ended up having six children and domestic violence and these relationships. She was someone I was very close to as a teenager. And one night I remember I sat up all night for her. I was like, oh, Stacy, may this my sitting here be of some value to you, right? It was influenced by that. I had this kind of courage that would come from that. And I think, I feel like the Buddha did too. You know, this, this drive that he had, this the bodhisattva through all these lifetimes, supposedly eons before he became a Buddha, he made a vow to awaken for the benefit of all beings, right? He supposedly met another Buddha. He was a wanderer at that time, and there was another Buddha. And um, at that time, he made a vow. May I, you know, may I become a Buddha, and then all these lifetimes after that, he was working towards this kind of perfection of the paramis and you know, loving kindness and concentration and truthfulness, all these qualities for the benefit of all. I feel that's deeply inspiring to me. Margaret Mead, she, she wrote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I think one of the saddest things um, is that we so focus on what we're not. We don't see the beauty. <laughs> like we miss all we miss all the flowers, we miss the, the the our beautiful qualities. You know, we're always so filled with, oh, I'm not this or this is what's wrong, or oh, I need to lose weight, or you know how we can get these really crazy ideas, like, oh, and we miss, like, this other beauty that's shining through. We miss our true nature. Alice Walker is a good friend of mine, and she's been a huge supporter of our center in Oakland. She has a lot of fundraisers for us. And she says, Spring, you know um, how people give up their power the most? And I said, how is that? She said, by thinking they have none by thinking they have nothing to offer, by thinking, you know, that they have nothing to give. So that's how people become really disempowered. And I was really touched by that. And we talked about that a lot. What does it mean to be of service in the world? What does it mean to see that we have something to contribute, right? That it's not just all craziness, like, oh, I'm so crazy. I got so many issues, like, we can go on that for a long time, and we're working on them, right? That's good. We're addressing the issues, and I think we need to. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But what about all the other? <laughs> you know, what about the light? What about the, the warmth, heart? What about that? You know, I feel like... Uh, part of my role on the planet is to remind you of your beauty. Like it's my duty. I say that sometimes my duty to remind you of your beauty It's my duty. You know, I say that Oakland a lot, right? Even if you can't see it, it's there. (laughs) I see it. There might be some issues on top, but that doesn't mean I don't see it. You know, that's how I treat my father who has some problems, right? But I always say, I see your beauty. I connect to that place. I think at some point, one of the things that we think about is, oh, how to serve others? Oh, how can I be helpful? How can I share the Dharma? That often becomes a question, right? We think, I want to share this with people. What's the best way to do that? What's a vehicle for that? Because I think what happens is when we get better in ourselves, when we heal ourselves, when there's more purification in ourselves, we naturally want to see that in the world. You know, I've heard stories where people have told me they left retreat and went home and cleaned their whole house. Right. Like I didn't even know I was living like that. I didn't realize it. And through awareness, I'm like, oh, the wallpaper is so ugly. How could I live like that for 20 (laughs) years? Or right? it's like with awareness, they start to think they start to. It's like we start to clean up things. Right. It's like, oh, helping. Oh, what can you know, little things like that. It's like awareness, the the sort of the cleansing of the mind, Mm -hmm. we brighten. Understanding this teaching about interconnectedness is very important. It's like it's like a fundamental teaching in Dharma. So interconnectedness is part of a terminology, it's a new terminology actually. The worldview, which sees oneness in all things. It's sometimes interdependence is used sometimes also. Uh, both terms, interdependence and um, interconnectedness, refer to the idea that all things are, are of a single underlying source. There's no true separation deeper than mere appearances. Everything is interconnected, interwoven. It reminds me of what Joseph was talking about with the butterfly effect, right? One ripple happens here, this effect is over here. Things are connected. Again, this teaching has really hit home for me the most around my own awakening around the Earth and nature. You know, similar to Josephus exploring his awakening sort of around different things, multiculturalism and all these, I think I had the same awakening around the Earth and understanding this interconnectedness, seeing it more deeply, understanding it. And also, many great beings also uh, saw this. I was looking at Albert Einstein's quote. He wrote, our task must be to free ourselves by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. He's a scientist. I think that's pretty good. And so much research is now happening around interconnectedness. Very, uh, a lot of work has been in the plant world Right, the plants. they now think trees have a very intense. They can talk. They can communicate right through vast distances. Right, that there's some kind of underground communication, growing and talking and supporting each other. You see this also. um, I used to study this book, The Secret Life of Plants. I was very interested in that and how plants they could even identify a killer, somebody who had come into a room. They did this study. It was so fascinating to me. I mean, if you really take it in, it's, it's really incredible. They had two plants in a room. There was an, uh, an experiment. One, Three people came into the room, and one destroyed one of the plants in front of the other one, mm-hmm. took some scissors and chopped it, right, and then went out. And then they came back into the room, and one at a time, they sent one person in. But the one who had did it, the other plant, they had you know, all kind of wired, it went crazy off the charts. It was like he knew that plant knew that that one was the one who had harmed the other one, right? And so this is this really profound and also how this fits together. Like how is this web connected? Like everything's alive. Everything's connected to everything else. Dr. Martin Luther King also really saw this interconnectedness. It was In his famous quote, he said, not not knowing Dharma, not knowing a lot of science, he wrote in his favorite quote, he said, In a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. So he saw that very clearly. He had to have seen this to do the work that he did, right? Because the liberation wasn't just for one group. It was for those that are filled with hate, those that are oppressed. It was everybody here needs to be free. and he, He saw that. That was a part of it. Also, um, I found this great quote by the Dalai Lama who talks about this a lot, right? He's in his book about ethics, ethics for a new millennium. He talks about this all the time, ethics for a new millennium. He wrote, interdependence, of course, is a fundamental law of nature, not only higher forms of life, But also many of the smallest insects are social beings who, without any religion, law or education, survive by mutual cooperation, based on an innate recognition of their interconnectedness. The most subtle level of material phenomena is also governed by interdependence. Phenomena from the planet we habit to the oceans, clouds, forests, and flowers that surround us arise in dependence upon subtle patterns of energy. Without their proper interaction, they dissolve and decay. It is because our own human existence is so dependent on the help of others that our need for love lies at the very foundation of our existence. Therefore, we need a genuine sense of responsibility and a sincere concern for the welfare of others. So I think that that happens on retreat. We start to develop this kind of sincere affection for other beings. Even if we, we, in the moment we're we're sitting on a cushion, we might feel aversion, right? But the moment the silence breaks, there's usually this... (laughs) kind of love starts to come through, right? So this idea of interconnectedness is what motivates the healing. It's what motivates us to serve in the world. It's like, oh, for the benefit of others, seeing ourselves in the other, right? I see myself in you, right? So of course I want you to be well, right? I see myself in the planet. Of course I want this planet to be healthy, Right? we see that it's our an extension of ourselves in some way how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young compassionate with the aged sympathetic with the striving and tolerant of the weak and strong because someday you will have been all of these george washington carver so again, it's like expressing this kind of view. And we miss this teaching a lot, actually. people I've met people who have practiced Dharma for a long time ago, interconnectedness. And I was like, yeah, this, in, you know, interbeing. I love Thich Nhat Hanh, right? The interbeing, council of interbeing. <laughs> Everything has this flavor of that. It's like we are this oneness. See, the problem a lot is that the ego hates oneness, its job is governed its life is on separate 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 I'm separate I'm not part of the you I'm not a part of this I'm not a part of anything I'm alone and then therefore being alone it amasses a big army right and then attacks that which it is so this concept for people is difficult even scientists publishing papers get attacked there's no oneness that's are you guys that's hippie talk right (laughs) right (laughs) and even though it's proven again and again the dalai lama is doing a lot of research in this like okay let's let's try to every possible avenue to help the truth get out okay let's do another research another thing another thing i was recently watching this beautiful documentary called i am some of you have maybe have seen it it was about the this hollywood producer he had made all those jim carrey movies Uh, wild nature when wild, na- I don't know. I'd, I actually didn't see many of them, but um, they're very popular though. I think he had this whole awakening after getting in a car accident, he has zillions of dollars, you know, and um, he then had this awakening. Like, I think I, I want to help the world and not just make these crazy movies. You know, what, what am I doing? Right. It was a huge awakening through his own physical illness and how he was, you know, had very serious symptoms after having a brain injury Uh, And he recovered fully when he actually started helping. He said, I'm going to fly around the world and talk to every person who has an answer on how to help the planet. And so but then what happened was the majority of the movie was about interconnectedness. And they did an experiment with him. He had a a, he was all wired up to a, a jar of yogurt. And they were like, "Okay, we're going to prove to you that you're interconnected with bacteria all of life we influence right and so he said he said he said think of a stressful thought and he said oh I got it I'm gonna think about my agent and my lawyer and then the yogurt went crazy you know like we're getting the feedback right and then he calmed down again you know think about something peaceful and then it was just this stuff is going to be everywhere pretty soon it's like oh this is life this is somehow the truth of things but we could miss this, I think, in all religions. I think this is missed, right? It's like. So I would just to give you an example of that, there's this poem I like. And a meadow lark sang is the name of it. So the child whispered, God, speak to me. And a meadow lark sang. But the child did not hear. So the child yelled, God, speak to me. And the thunder rolled across the sky, but the child did not listen. The child looked around and said, God, let me see you. And a star shone brightly, but the child did not notice. And the child shouted, God, show me a miracle. And a life was born, but the child did not know. So the child cried out in despair, Touch me, God, and let me know you are here. Whereupon God reached down and touched the child. But the child brushed the butterfly away and walked away unknowing. So there's some way in which when we have this view, we understand this. Everything becomes part of the dance. Everything becomes, we're connected to it all, right? We don't miss those moments. So, we can be uh, motivated by this truth we can be, uh, we can be governed by this, and so I want to share some stories about people who I feel that their work on the planet has been very inspiring for me, deeply touched by their presence. Some have passed over two, but um, the first one I want to talk about is uh, Maha Gosananda he's called the he was called the Gandhi of Cambodia. And he died about five years ago. And the reason I first became aware of him was that at Spirit Rock, there's a hut that says the Gratitude Hut. And it's all the photos of all the teachers. People love to go in there. They go in and it's like altars and it's covered on the walls of these great teachers. And, you know, from every lineage, some Hindu, some, you know. And, um, and so I saw this picture of him there. And the picture is very sweet. And i would seen this picture before, too. It's kind of around, he had come to Spirit Rock for a teacher conference, um, maybe 15 years ago, something like that, 15 years. I wasn't at the conference, but His Holiness the Dalai Lama had come to this conference. So it was a very big deal. You can imagine they had security and all these things. And so Maha Gosananda was invited. And they said when uh, His Holiness saw Maha Gosananda walking up the hill, he ran over and then he started to bow and each started to bow lower than to the other one. Their heads were almost on the ground. They were like that, Right, just bowing, and it was like compassion, bowing to compassion. And then, then Jack had told me that his attendant said that his holiness doesn't do that. Only I've only seen that on one other occasion. And it was with a yogi hermit who had come down and his holiness ran out and bowed like that. So it was like he was very happy to see Maha and many people think that Maha Gosananda was a living saint, you know, and his work, he was, you know, from a poor family, rice farming community, and he became a monk in his very early teens. And, um, and then he went to India, and he spent years there. He got a PhD, so he also had this this very scholarly side. He always joked in his life that PhD meant person has Duga. So <laughs> he didn't take... It's seriously, at all.
0: <laughs>
1: um, but when he met Gandhi in India, he was deeply inspired by his work, deeply, deeply inspired. And um also, I had heard Jack talk about Maha because he had met, and they had he had been familiar with his work because he had also worked in Cambodia uh, in and out of the the time around the peace corps and going back and forth. he um. Said that he was a very simple monk, he wouldn't nothing special. Right? So then and um, so then the war came to Cambodia and he got a phone call one day. All his family had been killed. Do you imagine that kind of news? Every his entire family, right? And many of the monks and nuns that he had loved and practiced with sold the sangha, all gone. So he um, came back to Cambodia and he had this idea that he would do these pilgrimages of truth, right? And he was really a huge part when the war ended. He would take all these people who were traumatized back to their ancestral land. So he wouldn't take them by truck because that was too much, too jarring, just the idea, because many had been taken away in truck. It was just, so he thought, we walk. We'll walk back to our land. We'll reclaim the land. We'll, 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 We'll come back to, and these were lands that people had lived on for, you know, generations, it was their home, you know, and so he would do these, um, they would chant the Meta sutta the whole time, and I thought that's what's so touching, right, it was like they would chant hatred will never cease by hatred, but by love alone is healed, and it would be, I guess, according to um, some of the the testimonies of people that would be up to a thousand people sometimes walking back, weeping. It was like reclaiming and then he would teach, even risking his life, right? He would teach and say, Let, let's forgive. So I was really I was really touched by his story just by hearing the stories of um, from Jack and then um, you know, he only died five years ago, and I was sad that I didn't make the effort, you know, this great being and I think what inspired me was this he would say peace is possible the call would become his personal motto motto he would build an army of peace he said whose ammunition bullets of loving kindness so that's would touch me about his life he was so dedicated to mecca you know and he did all kinds of restoration work in the country, all kinds. He was very active, engaged, right? But mostly engaged in helping his people deal with the suffering of what had happened. So that was somebody whose life is very touching, like, wow, an idea that you could help in some way. And I always think about that in Oakland. You know, we always go into some peace rally, there is something it seems like going on, rather. You know, and it's meaningful for people to come, you know, and to walk, to just represent your views of kindness and love. It's not cheesy. You know, we think it doesn't matter, but it does make a difference. You know, our energy, our hearts. So then that moves me on to the Mahagosananda, beautiful being. And then that brings me to my other um, sort of hero who's still alive, and his name is Mohammed Yunus. And Muhammad started the Grameen Bank. Now, this was a very, he won a Nobel Peace Prize, and he should have, it was really powerful, Nobel Peace Prize in 2006. What inspired me about him, he started the bank, which was microcredit. Micro lending, and they say up to this date he's helped six billion people. I mean, no, 17 million. He's given out six billion, uh, six billion dollars, you know, to help people. So he was, um, on all these different committees. He's been honored for all kinds of things, but here's how it started he was in Bangladesh, just a professor, right? He was in Bangladesh, he saw a woman at a market. Beautiful woven bag, right? This woman was very much in poverty, he could tell, right? She was selling them. And he asked her, "How much do you make from this?" And she explained that she had to borrow the money to make get the supplies. And after she paid the person back, there was these kind of shady lenders, you know, she made like pennies. And the story he goes in that moment, he said, "How could somebody live on pennies who make things this beautiful? Like, that's it. Something has to be done, right? I, so he started this bank, and anybody could borrow money from the bank, and they paid it back over time. And so basically, it's a way to lift out people from poverty, right? And so 90% of the loans given by this bank have been to poor women. And that's just massive. And it started a movement of micro-lending as a way to end poverty. And so he's very humble, and all the, the things you see about like, no, no, no. I just want to help, that's all. A very simple person, right? And he just meeting that woman in the market, a moment of compassion, a moment of interconnectedness. Right, it's like, you deserve better than this, right? I'm gonna figure out something. So again, that's like that's the open heart in action. You know, we see something and we think, no, I wanna help alleviate this. And we never know, like he couldn't have known that, you know. 25 years later, you'd be winning Nobel Peace Prize. It was a simple experiment. Like, let's start a bank and loan money and ask people to pay it back. How about that? And then we can loan it again and then again and then again and then again. And then all these people, you know, kind of just started from there. So I was inspired again by the, the kindness and the love. If you take real refuge in your heart, you'll be fine. You know, every day when I wake up and I feel anxiety, oh, my God, what am I supposed to do? It's like, oh, all you have to do is be a loving person. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of a dialogue I have sometimes. Like, oh, yeah, I, all I have to do is be of service today. All I have to do is be kind. You know? I walk outside, there's somebody there I could be kind to, whether it's, you know, people walk down the street or a cat or whatever, you know, it's like, If you just look at your life like that, it becomes so simple, right? Is what I'm doing in service of helping the planet? Is this helpful? Is this job helpful? I think the question I get at our center in Oakland the most is "Spring, how do I make money? I don't know. I want to be spiritual. And I try to sit down and think, okay, let's think about this together. Because this is a really good question. Has anyone had that thought while they were here? (laughs) Like, how do I live this? I don't want to, you know, I want to live this. And I always say, you know, things are changing so fast that the jobs that we're creating, the Sangha is creating, is growing. And I mean Sangha, I mean beings who care about the planet. I'm talking about inventors, scientists, people, philanthropists. When I was sitting my first retreat, there was only like maybe ten Dharma teachers. You know that job didn't even seem like a reality for me, and now it's what I do. It's not a job, it's a calling, but it supports me. You know, I have what I need. So we have to sort of trust in that our warm heart that we're manifesting new jobs all the time, the jobs of the future that many people here will have. they haven't even been they're coming out of consciousness now. oh. We need a peacekeeper for this, or we need a you know, meditation teacher at a high school. So many now I see so many opportunities and I can pass them around. Wow, they're looking for that. They need that, all dharma-based, right? So I think if we trust in that, our, our wise livelihood will, will reveal itself. And I think it's important to evaluate how. How we live, what are we dedicated to? It's a question to come back to again and again. Like, what is my focus? What is, what is that? And we can start very small. You know, sometimes it's a small, a small vision of something that mushrooms into this huge thing. You know, it's small acts. It's like the butterfly, little flap of the wings, and then, wham, huge result. So the Grameen Bay, Grameen bank, quite inspiring. And then over the last year, another person that I found very, so inspiring to me, actually through great love and devotion to this being. I mean, I don't know her, all I know is her story, but Malala Yusafzai from Afghanistan, 16 years old. Just, it was funny because I saw, I don't have a television, but sometimes news stories come when you log on, you know, your computer. <laughs> and I saw this article that said, a girl shot near death, right? And I just saw her name in a photo and immediately I was, I started to go and look on CNN, like, what's the story about, what and I just felt this huge love for this being. I started praying right away. Not only did I start, it was a whole chain reaction of prayers and people. And it was huge. So this little girl, she's not so little, actually, but she's a powerhouse in spirit. She might be young years uh, on this planet, but not really. She was born in 1997, and she's Pakistani. And um she lived in Swat Valley, and then the Taliban came. And she, in 2009, at the age of 11, she was writing an undercover blog for the BBC. So this is how she already was quite elegant. And I saw some of the early blogs. There's a lot of video. She was already speaking with this amazing presence, like my life under the Taliban, with this grace and like documenting what she thought was. Just horrible. What was the destruction? They had this paradise in her, you know, the girls could go to school, everybody was happy, Taliban swept in, total destruction, right? Within a very short period of time. So her BBC um, blogs became so popular that the New York Times came to find her in her town and did a whole documentary about her, right? And her views and her father wasn't really also quite wonderful. And he was an educator. He was a principal of the girls school that she was, um, she was attending. So he, had a, he was active, he cared about the rights of uh, all the children in the, in the community. And so um, how she became famous is that once she had this New York Times, you know, this, this whole video where she was expounding her views on equality, love, peace, right? Islam is a peaceful religion. Immediately, she went on the Taliban hit list and then they tried to kill her and they did actually almost kill her. They shot her. And so um, it was an assassination. And so she survived. It was so lucky, the whole story of her life. She, I mean, she almost died. And so many people got involved, like the Saudi Arabia government sent their private plane with a hospital in it. And she was having surgery in the plane. You know, it was like this grace, like whisked her out into England she got all these treatments. Anyway, she's this huge activist now. She's almost like, stands up, you know, she's on the Taliban hit list and they threaten her family all the time. She lives in England, but she finally recovered. And then she was, I watched a video of her at the UN giving a speech on basically women and the humanitarian crisis around them not being educated. And I just started weeping. I was like, wow, this girl's so courageous. You know, and I was so inspired by her courage. And her heart is so warm. She has no anger towards the Taliban. None. Just pure forgiveness, pure metta, courage, dignity, grace. It's like, wow, who is this being? Bodhisattvas come in all kinds of forms. I feel like this is one of them to help us all, right? Dr. King used to say, injustice somewhere is injustice everywhere. And so as part of our own awakening, we want to heal the parts that are sick, right? Mm -hmm. If there's suffering part of the world, we feel it. I feel like the Western anxiety is that all this other stuff is happening, right? We never can rest. We're like, something's going on. I know what you we always have this kind of fear. I feel like it's rooted some in that. So... If I heal you, I heal myself. I can live at peace, right? I love that um, Aung San Suu Kyi, when she talked about the generals, Joseph shared the story. She said, I don't want to hurt them. Here, these people have locked locked her up for years. She said, I want to liberate them. I want to lift them. Then we're all okay now, right? If you just try to destroy them, what good is that? Harm them. We want to help them. So I'm very inspired by Malala. In fact, I have a photo of her in my house now. And it's just something that just inspires me to keep going. Like, this little girl can do it ring. Keep on keeping on, right? <laughs> and sometimes that's what it takes on the path, a certain kind of keeping on, keeping on. You know, it's like, got to keep this thing going, right? And also one of the things about being somebody who is socially engaged is to be wise with it because what happens if you don't practice dharma, you fall into the darkness that you're trying to help. I've seen this many times, right? I've seen a lot of people out there on the front lines full of energy, but their hearts are all closed. That's not going to be helpful. It's definitely not sustainable, right? So the path, I think, of being a... a, somebody who's active in the world is both right you have to keep your heart open you have to practice right the feeling you have now this openness came from like all these days of sitting right and and to continue I realized for myself oh I only can do a lot of this kind of work I only can hold this view as if I myself am practicing all the time so there's a part to that So His Holiness the Dalai Lama, he says, never give up. No matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace in your heart and in the world. Work for peace. And I say again, never give up. No matter what is going on around you, never give up. It's kind of, I can see. His holiness as someone who has never given up, that's for sure. I, I don't think that he, his last moment on this planet, it will still be for the benefit of beings, like engaged in some way. So, you know, these types of inspirations aren't meant to compare one to another. Like some people might be thinking, I could never be Malala. I've got issues, right? We might be thinking that or problems or I, I can't do that. Again, it's just always to think about what we can do. That's the difference. Not what we can't, but what we can, what we can cre- create as a community, right? This is the community. We are the community. Sister Jill, remind me, Thich Nhat Hanh says the new Buddha is the community, right? I love how, you know, we've had this bumpy ride the last few days with the, around POC. <laughs> Why do I love it? Because it's coming up in the community, right? As a community, can we hold whatever, all the feelings? It's like, you know, we are it, right? What do we want to create as a community? Like, it could be beautiful. We'd want to create more centers. We want to create gardens. It's very very important to look at what do we want to do? What do we want to create? I love this prayer. Also, I read this a lot by um, St. Francis of Assisi. He says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in, in the giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in the dying that we are born to eternal life. So one of the things also about service is that we actually become happier when we're thinking of others. You know, when we we think of creative things, sometimes I feel often I'll, I'll get depressed about something or down and out, and then I'll have a class to go teach, and then I'll be inspired by that. Like, yes, we're all coming together. It was like in the giving, something in me was renewed, right? There's joy from altruism. You know, we have to see that more and more like, oh, my joy comes from this. My joy comes from service. My joy comes from helping. And it's not to the point of burnout, right? If we feel burnt out, we go on retreat, right? And then we we drink from the well and then we get full and then we go out. That's how I live my life. Go in, get better, go out again. Then I go in again. Oh, it's getting too rough. Okay, back in, then out, right? We have this kind of in and out, right? Always thinking of life as this unlayering process. In and out, one must take care of themselves always. If you don't have compassion for you, then none of it makes sense. The love has to be nourishing you, that your inner cup has to be strong. So, and then I think the last story is the um, Someone who uh, recently died as well, and somebody who uh, I feel very inspired. Her work lives on and on, like many of these people. She also won a Nobel Peace Prize, Wangiri Maitai. She's an African environmentalist, and more than that. But um, she won the Nobel Prize in 2004, and sadly, there wasn't a lot of exclamation for many reasons, I'm sure, but she, um, she was born in 1940. She died in 2011, but she, um, her life was amazing. It was a series of firsts. She was the first woman ever to get a PhD in East Africa. She was the first female chair of a university department at Nairobi University. She was an environmentalist and a biologist naturally. And um, she was the first African Woman ever, of course, to win the Nobel Peace Prize. But she, what she did was she started the Green Belt Movement. And her begin, beginning, again, came from this feeling of um, compassion. She was in Kenya. There had been a tremendous amount of environmental destruction. Deforest, deforestation was happening everywhere. And she was seeing the effects with that with families and poor people, especially in southern Kenya. So she went there, and she was very connected to the earth. This is somebody who would take a glob of dirt and go, ah, the earth, and, you know, sniff it. You know how we used to do when we were kids? We'd kind of eat it. We'd like it so much or something. we lose that as we get older, you know, and things get paved over with cement, you know. So she was like that, she would roll around and go, the mother, you know. And she was doing this in the late 60s, right? She was way ahead of the curve. So she started to make the connection between poverty and environmental degradation, right? She was like, this is a problem. These people are getting poorer and their land is getting worse and we've destroyed their farmland. And we, like she started to draw lines and she talked about interconnectedness a lot. Like we've got to restore this land. So who would think that just somebody that strong planting trees would have become Whoa, She had quite a lot of resistance. Tremendous resistance. In fact, there was a famous story where she was beaten up and then arrested. And she to, to document her what happened to her, she wrote her name in blood on the on her papers to the prison paper and said, "Somebody will. I will not just let this happen." <laughs> right? I mean, just this woman was phenomenal. So, anyway, the Green Belt Movement. She started having this idea of restoring the the homeland of all these people, planting trees. So she started huge nurseries and taught people how to plant trees and how to nurse them when they're little and how to grow them. Because she's this biologist and she would come and teach all the women, you've got to replant the trees and you've got to tend to the earth. Right? And they didn't know, but of course they wanted to, they couldn't feed their children and she saw all, she made links between human rights and the earth again and again, like we're connected. Her movie about her is called Dirt. This movie about, and she says the earth is our skin, right? And again, she's always lying on or in the trees. Or, but the zoom is brilliant in so many ways. And just like when you see her face, it's just radiant, it's like love, pure love. Like, I love the earth, I love these people. Like, how can we not do this? So her organization single-handedly in her life planted 51 million trees in Kenya, huge, right? Now they're thanking her. Other reforestation uh, projects because of the green belt movement have sprang up everywhere. Mass tree plantings in Southern India, right? Huge, I have friends who have flown there to different places and working in nurseries, starting the little trees, right? Thousands and thousands. Another organization that I partnered with that um, I've been just a, a supporter of is a, another organization called Tree Sisters, where their goal is to replant the Amazon. This is huge. I was like, what? <laughs> How do you replant the Amazon? They were like, billions of trees. <laughs> I'm like, Okay, let's just do it. Let's start, right? It's <laughs> just here's money for one. It's just from me, right? It's like, can we see it as a collective? Not one person does it. It's we, the community, right? And Wangiri, all her projects are community driven. It's like the community heals the earth, the community plants the trees, the community loans money to people, right? Through the Grameen Bank. It's the community who Heals people when they've been traumatized and takes them back to their home. It's the community. So we can be a part of that. So those are those are some of the people who's inspired me recently. I, Malala and Wangiri, Mahagosananda's heart, you know, just so loving. But we can contribute anything in any place whatever you're good at you don't have to work at a meditation center i mean you could be in politics wow. one of the teachers uh at spirit rock a trainee who's uh, now on this teachers council she's very active in the politics in san francisco and uh, she's really smart she has all the kind of credentials and we're all like anushka for president Oh, I don't know if I should have said Anushka, but she's gonna be like, when we're like, we need a president, like, you know, like, it doesn't, you don't have to fit in someone else's box. You don't have to stay here and eat tofu and think this is spiritual, (laughs) right? And walk slowly all around, right? You can be, it's you, whatever your gifts are. We need you to be you, not anybody else. These people were inherently themselves, right Wangiri laid on the earth and this that was what she wanted to do, right? What do you want to do? right? Some people, Muhammad, he was an incredible economist. He had that kind of mind, right? It's like it's not trying to be something else. I think the beauty is being who we are and fully letting that out and knowing that that has some value for the community. I think that's what Alice was trying to get at. She was like, when we know each person contributes something, could be music, could be art, it could be dance, it could be theater. Who knows? Some people will plant trees, some people will grow vegetables, right? And thank them for it. Like everybody contributes to that. So that's, I guess, all I wanted to say about being a Buddha in the world is to trust your own stream of beauty. (laughs) Like everybody's so unique and to trust that and to express that could be doing yoga, it could be whatever it is. And trust that if we frame it with this mind of bodhicitta and compassion, it will be of use, right? It will be contributing to the benefit of all beings. And then our practice takes on a whole nother life. We're able to sustain it, you know. We're able to go, the the longevity is what we want on the path, right. I think Greg keeps mentioning that monk in Burma who's the happy monk who's like 99 or something. Like I want to be like that actually, like the happy spring at 99 still talking like, okay, everybody, (laughs) you know, like to the last possible moment, right? we don't really know, could be sooner, could be, you know, but I know for most people, if they've lived a life of celebrating kindness and compassion, their death, they're at peace right? They feel good. Like, this is a wholesome life that I've lived. They can let go, right? They're not conflicted. I wish I could. Uh, I should have forgave. I should have tried. I should have, uh, uh, you know, they're not torn up. They're not entangled, right? Like, I did what I could here um, for the benefit of all beings. Some kind of moment of peace with that, you know, feeling good about our, our lives. So, I'm debating about reading one last story. It's a Jataka tale. It's a little bit long, though. (laughs) I think I'll read it because it is a story of the Buddha. So this will be, (laughs) supposedly, you know, this will be the last one. It'll make sense while I'm reading it. So it's a popular one. Jataka Tales are the stories of the Buddha's incarnations when he was animals. So it was like elephants and owls. And he was always very kind and all of them, right? You could always point out that's the Buddha. He's saving things and, you know. So the story is once long ago. So you can get a little comfortable, like a little bedtime story, you know, kind of vibe. <laughs> once long ago... <laughs> The Buddha was born a little parrot. So one day a storm broke upon her little forest home. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed, and a dead tree struck by lightning burst into flames. Sparks leapt on the wind and soon the forest was ablaze. Terrified animals ran wildly in every direction, seeking safety from the flames and the smoke. Fire, fire, cried the little parrot. Run, run to the river. Flapping her wings, she flung herself out into the fury of the storm and rising higher, flew toward the safety of the river. But as she flew, she could see that many animals were trapped, surrounded by flames below with no chance of escape. Suddenly a desperate idea, a way to save them, came to her. She darted to the river, dipped herself in the water, and flew back over the now raging fire. The heat rising up from the burning forest was like the heat of an oven. The thick smoke made breathing almost unbearable. A wall of flames shot up now on one side, now on the other. Crackling flames leapt and danced before her, twisting and turning through the mad maze of fire the little parrot flew bravely on. At last, over the center of the forest, she shook She shook her wings and released the few drops of water which still clung to her feathers. The tiny drops tumbled like jewels down in the heart of the blaze and vanished with a sound. Then the little parrot once flew back again through the flames and smoke to the river, dipped herself in the cool water and flew back again over the burning forest. Back and forth she flew time and time again from the river to the forest, from the burning forest to the river. Her feathers were charred, her feet were scorched, her lungs ached, her eyes stung by smoke, burned red as coals. Her mind spun as dizzily as the spinning sparks, but still the little parrot flew on. At this time, some of the devas, gods of the happy realm were floating high overhead in their cloud palaces of ivory and gold. They happened to look down and they saw the little parrot flying through the flame, the flames. They pointed at her with perfect hands between mouthfuls of honeyed foods. They exclaimed, look at that foolish bird. She's trying to put out a raging forest fire with a few sprinkles of water How ridiculous, how absurd, and they laughed. But one of those gods did not laugh. Strangely moved, he changed himself into a golden eagle and flew down, down toward the little parrot's fiery path. The little parrot was just nearing the flames again when the great eagle, with eyes like molten gold, appeared at her side. Go back, little bird, said the eagle in a solemn and majestic voice. Your task is hopeless. A few drops of water can't put out a forest fire. Cease now and save yourself before it's too late. But the little parrot only continued to fly on through the smoke and flames. She could hear the great eagle flying above her as the heat grew fiercer, calling out, stop, foolish little parrot, save yourself save yourself. I don't need a great shining eagle, coughed the little parrot, to give me advice like that. My own mother, the dear bird, might have told me such things long ago. Advice? Cough, cough. I don't need advice. I just cough. Need someone to help. And the god, who was that great eagle, seeing the little parrot flying through the flames, thought suddenly of his own privileged kind. He could see them floating high above there. Yes, they were the carefree gods, still laughing and talking while many animals cried out in pain and fear from among the flames below. Seeing that, he grew ashamed, and a single desire was kindled in his heart. God, though he was, he just wanted to be like that brave little parrot and help. I will help, he exclaimed, and flushed with all these new feelings, he began to weep, stream after stream, sparkling tears poured from his eyes. Wave upon wave, they washed down like cooling rain upon the fire, upon the forest, upon the animals, and upon the little parrot herself. Where those tears fell, the flames died out and the smoke began to clear. The little parrot, washed and bright, rocketed about the sky, laughing for joy, Now that's more like it, she exclaimed. (laughs) The eagle's tears dripped from the burned branches and soaked into the scorched earth. Where those tears glistened, new life pushed quickly forth, shoots, stems, and leaves. Buds unfurled and blossoms opened. Green grass pushed up from among, still glowing cinders. All the animals looked at one another in amazement. Washed by those tears, they were whole and well. Not one had been harmed. Up above in the clear blue sky, they could see their friend, the little parrot, looping and soaring in delight. When hope was gone, somehow she had saved them. Hooray, they cried. Hooray for the brave little parrot and for this sudden, miraculous rain. The Buddha saves the world again. (laughs) And may our practice be of benefit to all beings everywhere.